Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we are doing a podcast all about chess, which I have a feeling sounds like it has the potential to be the most boring podcast in the world, as though we are commentating a golf game. Which reminds me, we haven't done a podcast on golf yet, so maybe that's in the future. But Caroline, let's reassure our listeners that there's some fascinating stuff to talk about. Yeah, hold on to your butts, people. This is exciting stuff. Chess, the history of women playing chess, but the history of the chess game itself has a lot to do with women. Yes. So hold on to your butts. Also hold on to your pawns because I'm <laughs> going to be trying to throw out some chess puns throughout this podcast. So there's that to look forward to as well. So we do have a news item to kick things off with that initially got us thinking about women and chess because there is a new lady grandmaster of chess in the making and she is 12 years old. Yeah, when you say Lady Grandmaster, I picture not only a fully grown adult woman, but someone wearing, like, a cape. A wizard cloak? Yeah, perhaps. (laughs) But no, yeah, this is 12-year-old Jennifer Yu, who back in October became the first American girl in 27 years to win the title at the World Youth Chess Championship. She won 11 matches in a row and is rated a national master by the U.S. Chess Federation. She's also rated a women's national master by the World Chess Federation. And she is the best 12-year-old female player in the world and the 17th best female player of any age in the United States. So Jennifer Yu is, in other words, really, really, really good at chess. But what's also fascinating about Jennifer is that she picked up chess on her own. She wasn't prodded by her parents. It was just something that she took a liking to. Yeah, her parents are scientists and researchers, and they were like, oh, that's that's nice. That's fine. You can play chess. They didn't, like, take her to camps or anything like that. And it wasn't until one of Jennifer's coaches, I think the family was about to move from one coast to the other coast, and one of the coaches was like, hey, um, by the way, your daughter is brilliant, so you're going to need to go ahead and take her to, to chess championships and things like that. And it's also such a big deal, though, because she's a girl. So not only is it rare to find a talent at this age, just being 12 years old, but also a female talent. Yeah, because, you know, the history of of this particular game, I mean, women have played it, but in terms of the modern era and competitive chess, I mean, you just do not see a lot of women. So let's get into a bit of that history. Now, we could do an entire podcast just on the history of chess because it is long and it is fascinating, Mm -hmm. but we have a lot to talk about in terms of women in chess. So we just have to give you the condensed Version. So chess is one of the oldest games in the world. It was likely invented in eastern India by the 6th century. And it was first referred to as Chaturanga in Sanskrit, which might sound familiar to any uh, yogis out there because Chaturanga, uh, which translates to the four members, is the common move that you do throughout your yoga practice. Um, but the four members in that original chess represented the four parts of the Indian army, chariots, Elephants, 
cavalry, infantry, and then you have the king and the general. No queen at this point. No queen. So the game quickly spreads from India to Persia by the 7th century and then onto China, Russia, and Europe thanks to Muslim traders. And what I did not realize, I mean, why would I? I'm not really a chess player. I didn't learn until college, and I have since forgotten how to play. I hate admitting that. But fun fact, we get our word check, as in checkmate, from the Persian word shah, because the whole thing with king and checkmate basically means the king is the king is exhausted, the king is spent. And so shahmat evolved into checkmate. Yeah, and as chess spread around uh, the Middle East and into Europe, it became a really fashionable game among the medieval elite. And by the 15th century, the game had undergone a major change with the introduction of the queen piece. Because at first, it was just the vizier or general who would sit next to the king. And that was the weakest piece on the board. But then... The queen comes along, replaces the vizier, and at first, she also is the weakest piece on the board. Can only move one diagonal space at a time, but not for long. That's right. And and this fascinating information that, seriously, Kristen and I could spend a whole episode talking about is coming from Marilyn Yalom, who wrote an entire book about it called Birth of the Chess Queen, which, seriously, we're going to have to get that book. So she talks about how in the late 990s, not 1990s, 990s, we have the first recorded sighting of a queen piece in a Swiss monastery in a Latin poem versus on chess. And like Kristen said, the, this original queen still didn't have much power. She was really weak, couldn't move around the board a whole lot. But in the 15th century, the queen gets more power. So the birth of the chess queen that Yulom writes is essentially a thesis of how the evolution of the queen piece into becoming the most powerful piece on the chessboard parallels the real world medieval warrior queens who were wielding incredible amounts of power around the same time. For instance, in 10th century Spain, you have Tota of Navarre, who went to battle to install her grandson on the throne of Lyon. So grandma out out to <laughs> war, although grandma at the time was probably like 30. Oh, grandma. And then one of my favorite queens of all time in 12th century France, Eleanor of Aquitaine, who was the most powerful woman of the Middle Ages, um, who actually when she was born, her dad died and like left her all of this land in France. And she actually owned more land in France than the king of France at the time. That's just how powerful she was. Um, and at one point, though, after she'd married, she had married and then divorced the king of France and ends up marrying the king of England and at one point plotted to kill her husband, Henry II of England, to wrest the power through her sons. And she ended mm-hmm. up outliving her son, Richard the Lionhearted, and sort of held this kingdom together. That's sort of, not sort of, that's very Game of Thrones. It is very Game of Thrones. Well, and speaking of chess in medieval times and how in this much slower game before the queen could zoom all over the place and it really uh, sped up the pace, it was associated with 
medieval courtship and courtly love and the fact that these chess games, kind of like anytime I play Monopoly, (laughs) would take place over an entire day. You would have breaks for, I imagine, you know, chicken drumsticks and goblets of wine. And that was how men and women flirted because it was what, you know, they could sit at a table, their knees might even touch underneath. (gasps) And Eleanor of Aquitaine, is known in history as sort of developing this system of courtly love. Although, as fans of Stuff You Missed in History class might know, the whole idea of Eleanor forging this courtly love, as we think of it today, is a bit of historical myth, but still a fun one. Yeah, I love it. And I love that Yalom draws these parallels between Queen's power and the revolutionizing of the game, thanks to the Queen piece. And in reference to Eleanor, as well as Blanche of Castile, the 12th century Queen of France, Yalom writes, their illustrious reigns coincided with the spread of chess in France and England and enhanced the prestige of the queen on the board. Yeah, and some examples of these warrior queens get pretty intense as well, which only makes this, to me, her thesis uh, even stronger because when you think about 15th century Portuguese queen, Queen Isabella of Castile, who not only united the country, financed Christopher Columbus's foreign travel. She also exiled Spain's Jews, expelled the Moors, and ran the Spanish Inquisition. That woman was terrifying. She Her to-do list was a mile long. Yes. She, and, and vengeful. Yeah, a little, little bit of a controversial historical figure. And probably racist. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Um, but so if we move to the 18th century, it's notable that in Russia, that old vizier piece, the, the general, the weak piece that sat next to the king, did not become the queen or Tsaritsa until the historical example of Catherine the Great was available. Yeah, so there seems to be a really compelling parallel between history and the development of this game. But the ironic thing about the queen and chess becoming the most powerful piece on the board, perhaps as some kind of homage to these real-world queens wielding all sorts of power is that it increased the competitiveness of chess and essentially in doing so excluded the women, even though in the early days of chess, women were welcome to play. In 802 AD, for instance, one of the earliest known references to a woman playing chess comes from a letter written in Sanskrit mentioning the purchase of a slave girl, quote, for her skill in chess and talented chess playing women are also a common feature in early Arabic literature. Yeah. And so, you know, back in these days before the game was changed by the more aggressive queen piece, as Kristen mentioned, it was a great way for men and women, especially wealthy men and women to spend endless monopoly esque hours together courting to the point where in the Middle Ages, there was even a book of of erotic chess published. And so when we get this newly aggressive game, it's much more competitive. It's much more becomes much more masculine and male dominated and a lot less erotic. I think we should bring back erotic chess. Totally. Apparently there's this uh, I didn't have time to Google image it, but there's apparently this uh, painting uh, depicting Napoleon 
playing chess with a woman and she's naked. So I don't know if they were reading from the book of erotic chess, if they were playing strip chess or what. <laughs> strip chess, the slowest, <laughs> the slowest drinking and game playing ever. You, yeah, you'll, you'll be probably naked and passed out before, before anyone wins. But it's, uh, you, I never would have thought about that side of the history of chess too, as it being this tool for, if not, sex sometimes, just this medieval courting. Yeah, as a kind of innocent, basically, uh, excuse to to hang out and and touch knees. So here's a fun tip for any singles out there. Uh, (laughs) You could could play chess. No, but I mean, okay, so not to make it all about me, but it was a boyfriend in college who taught me how to play chess. And that was a nice way to spend evenings. Yeah. In college. In college. <laughs> Drinking and playing chess. Smoking your pipe. That's right. With, in my smoking jacket. Yep. Yes. Um, but again, the, once the game sped up, the women were excluded, essentially as it became more of a competition. But if you jump forward to the 19th century, it's really interesting to see how women tried to keep the competitive chess dream alive. And a, a lot of this timeline is coming from a fantastic and indispensable post over at Skeptic uh, by Brian M. And also from Encyclopedia Britannica, which talks about how as competitive chess really ramps up in the 19th century, women weren't welcome in the coffee houses or in chess clubs where guys were playing chess. Yeah, well, we've talked about that in our coffee episode, that like these these great places for hanging out and developing business bonds and personal bonds and getting a leg up in society. Playing chess. Playing chess. Women just weren't permitted entrance. But that did not keep them from playing. In 1830, that's when we get our first recorded modern female chess player. But I believe that her name wasn't recorded. Is that right? Yeah. I I tried to track down a name, but was unsuccessful. Yeah. And so then in 1847, the first or one of the first ever women's chess clubs opens in Holland. So you can play chess and have your tulips. I'm sure it was lovely. (laughs) Yes. There was always a vase of tulips on every table at the women's chess club. Perfect. And then in 1860, we get the publication of a wonderful book, which I should read if I ever want to remember how to play chess. It's called The ABCs of Chess by a Lady. And it actually ended up going into 10 editions. Yeah, I was reading through it and was expecting it to be some, since it was authored by this anonymous lady, I was thinking it was going to be some kind of ladies guide to chess, but it's really straightforward. It's just a basic gender neutral. This is how to play chess. No other mention of ladies. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's not like keep your eyes down, (laughs) cross your legs. Now, if you're feeling fancy, uh, touch his knee with your knee under the table. (laughs) And then as far as competition goes, in 1879, Ellen Gilbert defeated strong English amateur George Gossip, which that just sounds like a fake name. George Gossip, see? (laughs) Chess player. Exactly. She defeated him twice in an international correspondence match, which is chess by letter, chess by mail. That was really hot back then. There was no cable. But talk about a slow game. Yeah. Especially if it's a transatlantic correspondence match. Yeah. You could be playing that game for years. Well, I mean, I guess that's that that ties very well into the whole thing about chess, which is um 
you need such concentration skills, such power of of memory and forethought and planning. And so I would imagine that, you know, I'm sure you have your board at home that you're working with and then you mail off your your thing to your competitor. And so, I mean, that is a lot of built in time to just sit there and stare at the board and think. Yeah. But I also wonder if correspondence matches between male and female players at the time was seen as more acceptable than Ellen Gilbert actually sitting down across the table from George Gossip. That probably would have been unheard of because even today, as we'll talk about more, chess games are highly gender segregated where women play women and men play men. And I could only imagine that if that's the way it often is today, it would certainly have been that way in 1879. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so then in 1884, the Sussex Chess Association sponsors the first women's tournament. And then in 1889, we have the earliest known women's simultaneous chess exhibition. Yeah, that's where you are playing multiple games at one time. You kind of just go around and make your move, next table, make your move, and talk about needing some focus and attention and memory. Um on that. Yeah, I, that's no. <laughs> I can't. Well, in 1894, the Women's Chess Association of America forms, and in 1927, Vera Menchik wins the first Women's World Chess Championship. Now, keep in mind that, that all of these milestones are about 30 to 50 years behind men's chess milestones. So, long before Vera Menchik won, Men were playing in their own world championships and forming their own clubs and their own associations. And as with a lot of topics that we've talked about before, women kind of it took a a bit longer for women to organize and start their own thing. And of course, even this is something we still see today in chess is these women's groups by virtue of being the women's groups are usually seen as secondary in terms of the level of competition. So, for instance, Famed American grandmaster Bobby Fischer, who's probably the most famous uh, chess player in American history, once said about women playing chess, quote, they're all weak, all women. They're stupid compared to men. They shouldn't play chess, you know. They're like beginners. They lose every single game against a man. There isn't a woman player in the world I can't give night odds to and still beat. So and, and and that and that sums up a lot of the sentiment regarding women's talent with chess because there's this whole question of well maybe women don't play chess as much and there aren't as many female grandmasters because women aren't as good at chess and because chess is such a highly intellectual game then perhaps this is a great example of how women and men's brains are different and perhaps guys are just well smarter. I'm literally, I, I was just faking an eye spasm, but I now have a real eye spasm in my eye after you just said that. Because, of course, that's bull honky. Because, of course, this is super paralleled and it is, it just in my brain, but also in so many different things that Kristen and I read, super paralleled with conversations about the STEM field. But, Caroline, the devil's advocate would say, Riddle me this. Why out of 1,443 current grandmasters, that's as of 2014, only three are women. There has never been a female chess world championship and only 3% of all international masters are women and only 0.2% of chess masters are women based on the ELO 
rating system because there and and the ELO system is or LO is the universal chess rating system where you, this is how you get worldwide rankings. So why why is that, Caroline? Well, I mean, obviously, as as you might expect from listening to a Stuff Mom Never Told You podcast, there there are a lot of things that go into this, into this reasoning. Part of it is that women-only titles require fewer points. For example, 2,300 points to become a woman grandmaster versus 2,500 to become a gender-neutral, just general grandmaster person. Yeah, and and the guy who developed the LO rating system, whose last name is LO, uh, hence the namesake, has in more recent years called for just gender neutrality across the board. Now, in more recent years, the LO rating system essentially took away most of the weighting that it gave to women to sort of compensate for the gender gap to try to put them on a level playing field. But the fact that you still have a designated woman grandmaster that requires 200 less points still shows that it's they're they're in their own league. Yeah, I mean, I was definitely arguing with myself in my own brain reading all of these sources, because on the one hand, I totally disagree with the notion that women should have lower qualifying scores. I I totally think that, and of course I'm just kind of shooting from the hip right now, so bear with me, but um, I mean, I totally think there should just be a grandmaster period, you know, just gender neutral man or woman, whoever can qualify, that women should have the same level of qualifying points as men. Um, But on the other hand, I mean, I see the argument from some female chess players on the scene today who say, okay, yeah, I get it, equality, gender parity, all that stuff. However, because of certain issues that we haven't been able to fix yet, for instance, women chess players not being able to secure as many sponsorships or as lucrative of sponsorships as men can and not having as much prize money. This like harkens back to our tennis episode. Um, if some of the qualifying rules are made to be more stringent or too stringent, that could drive away more casual chess players who say, eh, I'll just go get a job where I can actually make money. Well, and speaking of tennis, for instance, and the fact that, you know, in most professional sports, you have the men's game and the women's game. Chess is looked at so much in terms of gender because it is considered one of the only sports, and yes, people consider this a sport, one of the only sports where men and women can play each other. Mm-hmm. And so that's why there there is this focus on what role women have in it. Because like you said, Caroline, like there's an argument for taking away all of like making it all gender neutral. But there's also valid argument for having giving more of a space for women to play to begin with. Right. And so we are getting ahead of ourselves. We'll get into more of these issues in just a second. But if we look back to 1978, Nona Gaprindishvili became the first female chess player to achieve grandmaster. But it was because she defeated four male grandmasters, not because she had actually accumulated the requisite number of points. Yeah. So some people said that's awesome, but not really because she didn't go through the traditional channels because this was around the time when people were thinking, oh, you know what, let's let's see if we can get more women in the upper ranks of chess. But then the Polgar sisters from Hungary came along 
and flipped the gender-segregated chess table over. In 1986, Susan Polger, who was the top-rated female player in the world at <laughs> age 15, uh, she became the first woman to ever qualify for the, in quote, men's World Chess Championship. And in 1991, she earned the Grandmaster status through the traditional route of earning all of those points. Yeah, I mean, and she was not alone in this, much like if we're continuing to draw tennis parallels, like the Williams sisters, who are amazing at what they do, but who had parents who were dedicated to making them amazing. The Polgar sisters had parents who were pushing them into chess, too. But so Judith was even better. She's probably the best female player in history. And she just recently retired, actually. Yeah, she was the number 10 player in the world, which is the highest ranking, uh, worldwide ranking, a woman has achieved in chess. At her height, she was the number 10 player in the world, which is the highest worldwide ranking a female chess player has ever achieved, with an ELO score of 2,735, the highest ever achieved by a female player. And she even beat Bobby Fischer's record. And it's interesting that Bobby Fischer uh, was aware of the Polgar sisters. He ended up hanging out with them. He played chess with them. And they had a pretty good relationship. Like when he died, they, you know, had very nice things to say about him, which is so, which is interesting considering that quote that I read. But I have a feeling that he saw them as obviously as outliers. I mean, they are outliers in terms of um, achievement of women in chess, as evidenced further by this lead from a 2001 New York Times article talking about Judith, which said, in the highly masculine world of top-level chess, it's no disgrace to lose to Judith Polger. In person, Miss Polger gives no hint that she is a tigress at the chessboard. She is soft-spoken, modest, and very feminine. Oh, come on. I... <sighs> Okay. You know, I mean, the two are not mutually exclusive. Exactly. But they also don't depend on each other either. I mean, but what's really fascinating, though, about the Polgar sisters is that none of them ever won a women's world championship title because they never bothered to compete for it. They were so good and so focused and probably so parentally driven in that focus that they avoided women's competitions all together because they said, you know what? Screw it with those women's titles. It doesn't require as many points. We want to go for the full on grand mastership. And they did. Yeah. And even, even their middle sister, Sophia, is also herself an international master. So this is, I mean, those parents didn't bother with piano lessons. No, no. <laughs> they clearly stuck to chess. But with Judah Polger being the only woman who has ever broken the top 100 world rankings and still no woman to ever win the world title, there's been a lot of research, though, on this lingering gender gap, not only in participation, but also in performance at the chessboard. And it's really fascinating to see how academics have looked into chess as this broader um, investigation into perhaps sex differences in intelligence. Mm. Well, so there are four major predictors of chess performance, and those include ability, verbal knowledge, memory, and motivation. And furthermore, chess ability is best predicted by deliberate practice. So much, so much practice. It's not 
Are you such a smart cookie? Are you born with some inherent chess ability? Like, were you playing chess in utero? It is certain skills. Yes, it's certain memory skills and certain motivational skills. But it is also, do you have the ability and the time and the drive to practice? So going back, for instance, to Jennifer Yu, who we talked about at the top of the podcast, who recently took the title at the World Youth Chess Championship, Grandmaster Larry Christensen told the Washington Post, quote, she has great vision of the 64 squares, tactical alertness, superior memory, will to win, and most especially, strong mental stamina. So you need a whole tool set Mm -hmm. in order to really dominate at the table. But some people think, though, that boys are likelier to have that tool set because of their testosterone-mediated visuospatial skills. Because if you think about it, um, and I didn't realize this before researching for this podcast, how when you're playing competitive chess, it does require the the ability to see in your mind the chess table, the chess board from the reverse angle. Right. Yeah. And I mean, this is the same stuff, not to continue to cite amazing stuff. Mom never told you episodes, <laughs> but it's similar to what we talked about in our Lego episode about the importance of playing with those kinds of toys to develop these visuospatial skills, to be able to plan how something will look as you're creating it and how big it will be and what that means for the size of the rooms, et cetera, et cetera, things like that. But the same sort of mental skills go into chess. And that is not a gendered thing, as so many people suspect. It's simply that boys are likelier to play with toys like that. And perhaps boys are also likelier to learn from a young age how to play chess, whereas perhaps girls' parents aren't as keen on teaching them. Yeah, when it comes to the research on the gender gap in chess, they really attribute this performance gap to two big things, that lower participation rate and also stereotype threat. So there was a study published in 2009 in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B titled, Why Are the Best Women So Good at Chess? Participation Rates and Gender Differences in Intellectual Domains. And it noted that the best male chess players are better than the best female chess players. Yes, but they found 96% of that difference is accounted for by the size of the male brain simply being larger. No, I'm just kidding. It was accounted for by statistical sampling of the best men coming from a huge pool of players compared to the best women coming from a tiny pool of female players. Yeah, and so talking about the size of those pools from which the talent is drawn, it's not a factor purely of girls just dropping out of competitive chess. At equal skill levels, boys and girls both drop out roughly at the same rate. It's just that from the get-go, there are way more boys than girls participating. Yeah, that was um, that was something that seemed to surprise most of the researchers, that uh, equality in the dropout rate, because initially the assumption was, well, girls just drop out. Because a lot of times when it comes to girls and, you know, childhood sports or early kinds of talents, there is a bit of a drop off that tends to happen around puberty. Um, but boys drop out, too. And a 2006 study in psychological science also notes that once the World Chess Federation quit gender weighting those LO scores, 
men's bottom averages have actually drifted lower while women's have risen. So without that waiting, they, it's interesting to see how both of them are kind of shaking out a little more equally. Mm-hmm. But we also need to talk about that stereotype threat because women have been systematically excluded from the game of chess for centuries now. And it is such a male-dominated game mm-hmm. that there is a pervasive stereotype that men are simply better at chess. Chess yeah. is a man's game. It's something that fathers pass down to sons, and, and it's this male-to-male battle of intellect at the board, usually with thick-rimmed glasses and tweed blazers involved, at least in my mind's eye. Yeah, exactly. And basically, uh, the stereotype threat has a lot to do with, in in this instance, the way a woman performs when she's playing chess, depending on who she thinks she's playing. This is coming from a 2007 study in the European Journal of Social Psychology called Checkmate, the role of gender stereotypes in the ultimate intellectual sport. So basically, they had a woman playing a person, the same person each time. And when she thought it was a woman... She played great. She played to the best of her ability. And she played aggressively. Yeah, she played aggressively. Exactly. When she thought she was playing a man, she played a more defensive strategy and her play actually suffered. And that plays into a common pattern of how men and women might play each other differently in that men and boys are likelier to play to win, Mm -hmm. whereas women are likelier to play to not lose. In mm-hmm. other words, mm-hmm. so there's more risk taking involved sometimes in the the man's game, especially if he's playing um, a, a female player, whereas women might tend to play more on the defensive, which, again, can might be influencing the gap in performance, too, because it's a highly aggressive game and you want to play to win. But speaking about how the women's game is still kind of segmented off. A chess champion and author of the book Chess Bitch, Jennifer Shadade, said, quote, the category of women's chess does not refer to some intrinsically female way of playing chess, but rather to being a minority in the chess world, which can affect the way a woman plays. Because, again, like we've said, boys tend to play more often. They play more competitive. They play at higher levels just because the pool is larger. There are Mm -hmm. more opportunities So the question and the answer then to the gender gap in chess for the game today, for the sport, I should say, today, is really 12-year-old Jennifer Yu because she's the future and she is a girl and she's excelling at this high level. But at the same time, she's also, she leaves the question of how chess advocates like Susan Polger, who's still highly involved in the chess world, how do they get more girls into the game? Because a lot of them do want more girls to play, mm-hmm. but can the sport overcome centuries of exclusion? And also, would it be useful to get more women playing in just general tournaments and sort of do away with the women's only system? Man, I... I don't know about doing away with the women's system yeah. because, I mean, a lot of, of women players have said, you know, especially like Jennifer Shadade, who you just mentioned, have argued for keeping it around just just to keep women in chess and keep up that visibility. And 
like you know, if you listen to the podcast, and Kristen and I have talked endlessly about, is the issue of visibility, of getting those women role models in front of young girls to not only make it seem cool or neat or fun, but to just make it seem normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, I just wonder, though, if as long as there is the segmenting off of women into their own own tournaments and their own bubble, if the problem will persist. Yeah, I know? mean, personally, like non-podcast official person Caroline, I, I you know, non-chess playing Caroline, too, I think that... Why shouldn't it all just be one yeah. big tournament? Just We're, one big game of chess. That's what life is. Because aren't we all pawns? <laughs> Where are the queens? Girl, I'm a queen. I did not toss in as many puns as I would have liked. I was totally surprised. I think I only got in one. I know. Well, checkmate myself. <laughs> that's not even a pun. Okay, I'm going to give up. Well, I hope there are some chess players listening because we want to hear your thoughts on this mom stuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address let us know if you play chess and why you do what what do you enjoy about it email us you can also tweet us at mom stuff podcast or message us on facebook and we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now Well, I've got a letter here from Molly about our episode on PMS, and she writes, I wrote my thesis on how PMDD is communicated to women on the Internet, and so I wrote a lot on the cultural constructions and the delegitimization of women's experiences in the proposal. You guys were spot on with everything about the feminist critique, the medicalization of women, and the genealogical analyses of the time periods in which the diagnoses, in quotes, were invented for women. I am so proud that there is a podcast about women experiences that takes a scholarly feminist tack. In the end of your podcast, you pose some questions about which directions we need to go with research now. My feeling is that we must first leave behind the dichotomous thinking that got us here. Sick, not sick, women, not women, PMS, PMDD, etc. By focusing on continuums of emotions, hormonal levels, and depressive states or menstruating states, we can find a lot more inclusion and understanding of these experiences that are not so deterministically categorized. After all, to categorize is to control, and to maintain control over our bodies, we must resist binary categorization within the heterosexual matrix of patriarchy. Secondly, along these lines, research needs to move to gathering data for women by women. Women are the experts in the experience of menstruation, and not the kind of women who betray us to the patriarchy like Catherine Horney. We need women like Usher and Aaron Reich at the forefront. We must move research forward by bringing power to the female voice in these situations. We must find ways to define ourselves outside the patriarchal discourse and have our experiences without feeling bad about them. So thank you, Molly. That was a very exciting, empowering email to read. Well, I have a letter here from Amy, again, about our PMS episode. She says, in grade school, during sex ed, we were taught the symptoms of PMS, and every time the topic came up, which was maybe two or three times, people would immediately launch into discussions of their menstrual cramps, muddying the two. More than once, I've heard a woman say, I'm PMSing so bad right now when referring to menstrual cramps, which added to my confusion and I think adds to the current misunderstanding of the term. 
Overall, getting your period is a woman's rite of passage, but it's still treated like something to be swept under the rug and dealt with quietly and meekly because, ew, blood. The idea of PMS is tied so heavily to menstruation that announcing how badly you're PMSing, especially in high school, was basically announcing that you're part of that super secret club and are officially a woman. The sad thing is that we're more likely to make a joke than to learn about our bodies and know when to ask for help. I learned about what age men needed to get their prostate exams, why they turn and cough during exams, and all sorts of penis-related facts before I learned that the crippling, depressing, and crawling out of my skin feeling the week before my period wasn't something I had to quietly deal with alone. Love the show and the topics. Maybe not this one so much. So thanks, Amy. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. MomStuffAtHowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one with sources so you can read along with us, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 